Welcome to the Crossroads Church Sermon Podcast. The following message is meant to help intersect your road with God's road. Crossroads Church gathers to discover God, grow in Him, and reach out to others. For more information, visit crossroadsstjames.life. Last week we finished off uh, chapter 4 of Esther in our series, uh, Saving a Nation. And uh, she had just called all the Jewish people, including herself, to a three-day fast. Three-day fast, looking for the Lord's favor and doing what she feels led to do to save this nation. Remember, Haman had set up, listen, in 11 months, we're going to slaughter all of the Jews, and this is what's going to happen. Mordecai is very concerned. Esther's uh, uh, cousin, who has pretty much adopted her and is kind of acting in a fatherly role, and uh, she becomes queen. Uh, with uh, King Xerxes of of Persia, and uh, he comes to her, and he's like, hey, this is what's going on, Uh, and at first, Esther is kind of like, what what can I do, and and finally, she says, you know what, we're going to move forward with this. I'm going to, I'm going to put my neck on the line. If I perish, I perish, and so she she calls the entire nation uh, of the Jewish people to uh, to uh, to a fast because her feeling was that she needs to do uh, was to have a meeting with King Xerxes to go ahead and put her neck out on the line like I said the fast for three uh, the fast for three days uh, that we're about to see and and based on what we're about to see in these words uh, I don't believe this was a time of like a, a spiritual pump up you know what I'm saying like she's about to do something huge and then she she just needed someone to tell her what to do you know like I don't know if any of you guys have been in like a weight room or anything like in sports in the day and you're trying to you know get people pumped up come on punch it you can push it you can push it keep it going keep it going and they're screaming they're yelling and they're as sweaty and red in the face as the person on the bench press trying to push up all the weight um, I don't think that's necessarily what is going on here for Esther. Um, remember, she stated that if anyone stands in the inner courts of the king and, she, and they are not, and the king is not pleased with them, that, that, they are, that they are going to die. But I don't think that during this time, this fast was necessarily a time of, of like, like, like pumping her up and getting her to get to where she needed to be. Uh, We'll talk about that in a second. Look at Esther chapter 5, verse 1 with me, if you have your Bibles. Esther chapter 5, verse 1. On the third day, it's the third day of the fast, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace in front of the king's quarters while the king was sitting on his royal throne inside the throne room opposite the entrance to the palace. Now listen, friends, I believe the three days of fasting, at least for her, was a time of planning with God. It was a time of planning with God. Don't get me wrong. There are times in the word uh, when, when God has things happen on a whim. It's just like, okay, here's what's going to happen. You can pray. And then boom, all of a sudden, uh, someone is in a situation and they just have to act. Just, this is what you're in. Go ahead, do it, move forward in this. And that's, that's what's going to happen. There are times more often than not, more often than you might think that there are also situations which God designed a plan that people are called to be obedient to. 
in their times of prayer, in their times of fasting, they're sitting there almost commiserating with God, it seems like. Okay, Lord, how do we want this to work? How do we want to make this happen? They may not get all the details. They may not understand every single part of it, but God kind of leads them and says, hey, listen, you're, fra- you're praying, you're fasting. Let's get this idea. This is what we're going to do. This is the, this is the direction that we are, we are going to go. I personally believe that ec- Esther's actual act of faith happened at the time that she listened to the man of God, Mordecai, listened to him and, and threw caution into the wind and decided she would go in front of the king and if she perished, she perished. That powerful line, right, after Mordecai says, hey, this is what will happen if you don't do this, she comes out and says, listen, I will stand before King Xerxes and if I die, I die. And I think that right there, that declaration was her faith of listen, I know God has called me to do this, and so I am going to step forward, I'm going to do it. And we see that occasionally in the Bible where people just need to step out in faith and just do it, and whatever happens, happens. Most popular story is probably David and Goliath, right? When, when David's standing there, he's, he's just bringing lunch to his brothers, and, and, and he's like, what are you guys all standing here for? And they're like, well, Goliath is doing all this stuff. And David's like, what in the world are you guys doing? You've got God on your side. Let me go out there and do it. And so he just, on a whim just has the faith and says, you know what, I'm going to go do this. I know I've seen God work before, so I'm going to make this happen. Uh, A smaller story, Blind Bartimaeus. We always bring it up during Palm Sunday. Blind Bartimaeus, he gets up as the crowds pass by him, as Jesus passed by him, uh, and and he cries out and says, you know, son of David, have mercy on me. After a couple of times, he's told to shut up. Finally, Jesus says, what does this guy want? He jumps to his feet, and remember, he throws off his cloak. That was the act of his faith because what was he doing with that cloak? That cloak allowed him to beg. That cloak allowed him to make money as a blind person. He said, I'm not going to need this anymore. And so he jumps up, he throws it off, and he does that. So sometimes the act of faith, you don't realize it at first. You don't really see it. I believe Esther's act of faith was that if I perish, I perish. I'm going to do this. And so when she calls that group to a fast, and she calls herself to the fast, her enunciation has that faith, and then she gets down into that time of prayer and fasting for those three days to sit down and plan with God. Lord, I've got the faith. I I know that I have to move forward. Now, Lord, what do we do? So the purpose of fasting was for her to show God uh, that she wanted nothing of this world to interfere with hearing from the Lord. She's like, you know what? I don't want to be distracted by anything. So I'm not going to eat. I'm not going to do anything. I'm going to kind of close myself off, and it's just going to be me and God. I want to hear from God. Sometimes, friends, that's what we need to do. If you're stuck in a rut and you're trying to figure out what in the world am I supposed to do, what is God trying to say here, there are times we need to push everything away and say, you know what, I don't want anything to interfere. I need to hear from the Lord. And that's part of the reason why people go into a prayer and fasting time. It doesn't have to be for 40 days. It doesn't have to be super long. It can be for a day. It can be for three days. And you can sit down and you can say, Lord, I'm just going to drink water. I'm not going to do anything else except listen to you and drink water and try to find out what is going on here. Because you know what we don't want to do is we don't want to be like, well, was that the Lord speaking or the loaded broth that I had last night? <laughs> was that the Lord speaking or that piece of pizza that's, that's not sitting too well in my stomach right now? It's those kinds of things. And so when we decide to take that step of faith and say, Lord, I want to hear from you. I want to clear everything out. Let me hear from you clearly. That's, that's, that's part of our purpose for when it comes to prayer and fasting. And that was the purpose for Esther. She goes down, she says, you know what? I'm going I'm to fast. I'm going to pray and see what the Lord says. 
So we're going to see her put out uh, the plan that she gets from the Lord. He, he gives her this plan. We'll see that plan in a minute. So when she enters the inner court, I can't help but think she probably had the utmost confidence because she's been in that time, and she really has been in that time pre- uh, uh, kind of planning with God and, and figuring that out. I can't believe she was going in thinking, well, I guess I'm going to die. <laughs> I mean, we, we've come up with this plan but maybe the Lord is going to kill me uh, through Xerxes. It just doesn't seem that way. But, but she comes in, and I think she did have some, some confidence there. So she enters, and what happens in verse 2? Is she going to make it? Is she going to survive? Verse 2 of chapter 5. And when she, uh, when she uh, or I'm sorry, when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, she won favor in his sight. And he held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Then Esther approached and touched the tip of the censer. The Lord only knows why Xerxes wouldn't allow her in his presence for the last 33 days. Remember, she said to Mordecai, listen, I haven't been with a king in 30 days. I don't know what's up. And now she had three days of fasting. 33 days, for some reason, the king didn't want anything with her. We don't know what's going on, but guess what? That point is now all moot. And it doesn't matter anymore. We don't care anymore. We're going to move on because apparently Xerxes sees her, dare I say, is happy to see her and extend that scepter and Esther responds appropriately from as far as we can know she's supposed to touch the scepter and so she does. Um, So she may have entered that inner court with great confidence but there's something about her countenance that we can see in verse 3. And the king said to her, what is it Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given you even to the half of my kingdom. And now really quick here friends, It's lost a little bit in translation, but the Hebrew language isn't as blunt as the English language, and there's some some hyperbole to what King Xerxes says to her. So the first thing, the whole idea, what is it that you want? What what, what do you need here? He's not just kind of asking this flippantly, you know, I'm a busy dude and I got a lot of stuff to do. What do you need? What do you want? What's going on? In In the Hebrew language, it's more of what's on your mind. I noticed that there's something going on. You look different. I don't know if it's a frown. I don't know if it's whatever it is. We don't have a description. There's no description given of, of, of what it is. And, and to be brutally honest with you, there's, there's been times in the past where people have added to the story uh, to say certain things, and it, it, it messes up the story completely. Um, but within the Hebrew Bible, within most of your Bibles and, and the versions that you read, you're good to go. It's, we don't have a description of what she looks like, but based on the Hebrew wording, Xerxes noticed that something's going on. Something's happening. Something's on your mind. What do you need? And then this whole offer of half his kingdom, this is the hyperbole part. Okay, not to sound bad. Xerxes does love uh, uh, Esther, and he, he, he likes her and everything, but, but, but he doesn't like her that much. He's not just going to give up half of his kingdom and say, hey, yeah, why don't you rule it? I mean, let's be honest with ourselves. At this period of time, it's, it's, it's a very male-dominant society. And he's like, yeah, well, I think I'm just going to hand half of my kingdom over uh, to, uh, to this female here. That, that, that wasn't like a thing. And so, so really what he was saying here is, there's something on your mind. I want to know what it is. And guess what? I want to do anything that I can 
to help you in this situation. That's what it was. He's expressing this desire. I want to make you feel better or whatever it is. And so, you know, if it takes half of my kingdom, that, that kind of thought, that's what I, it's, it's like if you looked at, at your spouse and, and you noticed that they were, that, that they were down in the dumps and, and, and you're just trying to figure it out, you know, I would move the sun and the stars for you. You can't do that, but you say it, right? I would do anything. I'll move the mountains. I'll, I'll do all this stuff because I care about you and, and I want to see you. I want to see you well. I want to see you happy. I want to see you joyful, whatever it is. And so that's kind of what Xerxes is doing here when he says, I'll even give up to half of my kingdom for that. Um, so we have this. Esther has uh, what she needs. She, she hears from, uh, from King Xerxes. He asks her, what is it? What's going on here? And so she begins to unfold the plan that God has given her. Look at verse 4 of Esther 5. And Esther said, if it please the king, let the king and Haman come today to a feast that I have prepared for the king. Then the king said, bring Haman quickly so that we may do as Esther has asked. So the king and Haman came to the feast that Esther had prepared. Verse 6, and as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king said to Esther, what is your wish? It shall be granted, uh, it shall be granted to you. Uh, I'm sorry. And as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king said to Esther, What is your wish? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom, it shall be fulfilled. Then Esther answered, My wish and my request is, If I have found favor in the sight of the king, and if it please the king to grant my wish and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come to the feast that I will prepare for them, and tomorrow I will do as the king has said. So they have a first feast. And they get all together, Haman, Xerxes, let's get together and do this. And, and so the king comes up and says, what, what would you like? What, what's on your mind? What's happening? Let's have a second feast. Come back tomorrow, and we're going to do this again. Now, read a couple of commentaries, and you wonder, why in the world does she do two feasts? <laughs> what's the point? Why doesn't she just say it? At the first feast. Now, some of the commentaries that I read, I got to say, I, I disagree with them a little bit. <laughs> some of the commentaries will come out and say that this woman who just called an entire nation and herself to a three-day fast, who apparently heard God, stuck her neck out on the line, stands before Xerxes with, with the possibility of, of, of dying. All of these, these powerful things, throwing caution into the wind, saying, if I die, I shall die. All of a sudden... And they literally say this, because she is female, she's a little weaker. So she can't come out and say what she wants to say in the first banquet. Ooh. I won't show you those commentaries. I don't want a book burning here or anything today. But, but that's what some of them say. Listen, friends, I can't believe that happened with everything that has happened so far. I think what Esther had here was a very strong dose of godly wisdom. Let's think about this really quick. First of all, Mr. Haman. Mr. Haman comes in and, and she decides to blurt it all out. Haman has decided to annihilate all of the Jews, which are my people. He wants to kill all of my people. What do you think Haman's going to say? And guys, you know what Haman's going to say. You know exactly what Haman's going to say. Hey, Xerxes. Um, so yeah, you haven't seen her in like 33 days, right? Okay, okay. She's a little volatile, a little emotional, little irrational. Maybe we caught her at the end of a cycle, if you know what I'm saying. 
Maybe, maybe we let her go, and you and I, we'll, we'll discuss this, and we'll talk about it, and then we'll bring Esther in, and, and, and we'll make this all better. <laughs> Esther knew that. God knew that. If Haman does that, he's a cocky dude. He thinks he's all that in a bag of chips. If I come out with this plan, he's just going to do this and try to thwart it all and make it all kind of goofy. So guess what we're going to do? We're going to kind of throw them with a surprise twist, and we're going to have a second banquet. Because the other reason that God does this is because God uses what is known as commissive language in the Bible. Commissive language within the Bible is is a story or is an action to get an emotional response from people. You want to get an emotional response. Examples of this, David. David, after he sleeps with Bathsheba, has Uriah killed. She bears a child. And about two years later, the prophet Nathan shows up, right? David thinks everything's good. Everything's all good. I had this kid. It's a bummer that we lost Uriah, one of my mighty men. But, man, I really like Bathsheba. And and so now I have this kid. Nathan, the prophet, shows up. And what does Nathan do? Nathan tells him a fun little story about a a guy in in the nation that has a bunch of sheep. Whole lots of sheep. But then there's this one guy that only has one sheep. And the guy with a lot of sheep wants to grab the sheep from the guy that only has one sheep. What does David do? He blows up, right? How, how dare that guy want to do that? That's terrible. That's absolutely horrible. Bring him in here so I can chop off his head and all these other things. I mean, he gets very violent, very crazy. He's like, we, we got to punish him to the extent of the law. And what does Nathan do? You're that dude. You're that guy with all the sheep. You're the one that did it. A surprise. A lot of Jesus' parables were meant to get an emotional surprise response. We talk about the Good Samaritan, right? We're so far removed from that story, like 2,000 years removed from the story. They've done studies on it where everybody's like, the priest and the Levite are terrible people in the story, and the Samaritan is a good person. He's a good guy, blah, blah, blah. If you were to go back then, that's not the case. They absolutely hated the Samaritans. So what we kind of have to do is change that particular story to the good transgender atheistic gay guy that helped the guy. That's literally what it is. This, it's this commissive language. It's this language to surprise. It's this language to be like, oh my goodness, what in the world is going on? And God has decided to do that and, and kind of set this up in this way, even for Esther here. These stories were meant to produce that shock and awe in people. And why does God do this? Because God created us as emotional beings with the ability to be caught off guard. And sometimes that is much more effective at getting the point across or learning a lesson than simply just blurting out a sin. Hey, you shouldn't commit adultery. Hey, there's two guys that you don't like. You know, this guy gets beat up, and uh, two guys that you like don't help him, but one guy that you really don't like helps him. That, that doesn't get the blood flowing, does it? That doesn't get your mind thinking. God does that because we are emotional beings, and he wants to get that point across. Now, we can't definitely say that Esther understood everything that's going on here. He may not have given her every single detail of the plan, but we can be pretty confident that God was pulling on the heartstrings of Xerxes and the ego of Haman to set up the right response to catch them off guard at this second feast. For Xerxes, Esther is making sure that he understands the importance of the things that she needs. What she wants is something very important. 
I'm not about to hear, I'm not about to come and ask you to go onto Amazon and buy me a dining room set. That's not what we're trying to do. I'm about to lay down the boom and tell you I need to save an entire nation of people that you have just signed off to be killed. This is going to be a big deal. So she's pulling at the heartstrings of Xerxes. She's, as she says what she says, it is meant, it is intended for Xerxes to think, this is something really important. So as he goes to bed at night, he can think about, what is going on? What is she thinking about that she would want to hold a second feast? This must be big. This must be huge. This must be bigger than a futon. This must be bigger than a new plant. This must be huge. That's the whole point. And then with Haman, well, we already know Haman's an arrogant jerk, right? So she pulls on his ego. And so Haman's like, she wants a second meeting. She looks at me and Xerxes like on the same playing field. It's like Batman and Robin. And by golly, she might even know the secret that I'm Batman and he's Robin. I'm going to love this plan. This is going to be great. I can't wait to hear what's going to happen tomorrow. So she plays to both of them. She plays to Xerxes' heartstrings. She plays to, uh, to uh, Haman's ego. And everything is kind of set. Everything is, is established there. And we won't get to that second, uh, that second banquet until next week. Sorry, guys. I mean, we could stay here till 1.30 if you want to to get to that, but we won't do that to you. So Haman initially heads home, and he's feeling pretty good. Batman and Robin and Batman has been called back. We're all good to go. And so he heads back. Verse 9. And Haman went out that day joyful and glad of heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he neither rose nor trembled before him, he was filled with wrath against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home, and he sent and brought his friends and his wife Zeresh. Verse 11, and Haman recounted to them the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons, all the promotions with which the king had honored him, and how he had advanced him above the officials and the servants of the king. Then Haman said, even Queen Esther, let no one but me come with the king to the feast she prepared. And tomorrow also I am invited by her together with the king. Yet all this is worth nothing to me. So long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting in the king's gate. Then his wife Zeresh and all of his friends said to him, Let a gallows fifty cubits high be made, and in the morning tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it. Then go joyfully with the king to the feast. This idea pleased Haman, and he had the gallows made. In short, friends, one cannot find true joy outside of God. Look at what Haman just did. Look how rich I am. Remember, remember, he offered to pay for this this extravagant plan of killing all the Jews with 10,000 talents of silver, with $288 million. He said, I'll provide it. I will make this happen. He's rich. He's probably the second richest in the kingdom, only to Xerxes himself. He's got a ton of money. He's got a big family. He's, you know, look at all my family. Look at all my friends. I'm popular. It's, this is amazing. This is awesome. He's moved up quite rapidly within the, within the officials of the king. He's there. Even Queen Esther thinks he's awesome and amazing. He's like, man, life is so great, except. I got this idiot Mordecai who's just gnawing at me because he won't stand and rejoice with me. He won't stand and honor me. He won't do these things. 
It gets so bad for Haman that he agrees with his family to put up a massive pole to impale Mordecai. Now, we've talked about this before. I don't, we have no clue why they want to translate it as gallows, but it is, it is a pole that they set up because the, uh, the Persians did not hang people. It is a pole that they set up. They'd execute them in some way, and then they'd throw them up on that pole for everyone to see. This is what happens to you if you decide to break the laws, okay? And so they decide, hey, let's... Let's put this pole up in the front yard, and then you go tell hey, you go tell Xerxes to allow Mordecai to be killed, and then we'll throw him up there, and, and everything will be good. Now, just to give you a heads up, this could be some more hyperbole. Uh, 50 cubits, just to give you an understanding, that's 75 feet, 75-foot <laughs> pole. Um, they want it done by morning, and they, so they would have to do it at work. But, you know, at night. So we're not sure if in the, in the middle of this impassioned speech that the family also just gets into a, a little case of hyperbole. and says, let's get a big old pole, and, and we're going to put it in the front. I, I, I doubt they had a 75-foot pole just kind of sitting there waiting uh, to be used for that. They may have had some because they had already started making uh, the various poles for the, for the Jews to die. But anyways, the, the big thing here is Haman is completely messed up. He's so angry. He has so much hatred for him that, that this, is, this is what he does. Because this is what hate and anger do to a person. It skews their version and it rots a person from the inside out. When we have hatred and we have anger in ourselves, it skews our view of people and it causes us to rot from the inside out. For Haman, this makes sense as he doesn't know God. He has no clue who God is. For the, same, for the world, it's the same thing. It doesn't know God, so hatred and anger make it rot. And I'm telling you right now, a lot of you guys know there's a lot of rot out there, is there not? All you got to do is pop onto your social media and what's going to happen? You're going to see a lot of hate, you're going to see a lot of anger, and you're just going to see a whole lot of people not liking anybody or anything. The real seriousness, friends, of this issue, though, is when hatred and anger infiltrate the individuals of the church. Now listen, we may try to write off the issue of hate and anger in ourselves as holy anger. I've got a holy anger. Make sure you catch what you're saying there. Make sure you understand what holy anger is. When you look at the scriptures, friends, holy anger is reserved for a few things. Holy anger is reserved for the demonic. Holy anger is reserved for dark ideologies that might extend from the demonic. Things like, oh, I don't know, abortion, um, hating people for the color of their skin, hating people because they make more money than you, hating people because of, of, of reasons like uh, Haman has it. Those kinds of things. There's, there's, there's a holy anger against those issues. And then there's a holy anger towards people who would claim to follow God, but then mislead those in trying to lead them to follow God i.e. Jesus with the Pharisees. There was a constant holy anger with Jesus and the Pharisees in which he was, you know, flipping over tables and doing stuff and constantly coming against them because there was that holy anger that was there. So, so it, it does exist. It's there. False teachers, false prophets, those kinds of things. Those, those are what are reserved for holy anger. The goal of that holy anger, that righteous anger within a human, is to bring godly correction to a person or a situation. So when our hatred turns towards the unbeliever and we start believing our own rhetoric that people are irredeemable, people cannot be saved by God, that's where we get into trouble. 
when we can't check our anger at the door and say, Lord, what am I angry at here? Am I angry at this person? Or am I angry at the thought process? Am I angry at the the demonic? Am I angry at the darkness that is there? When you start making it about the person, when you start making it about the people, that's where it gets dangerous. That's where it becomes hard. When our hatred turns towards that un- unbeliever, that's where, we, that's, where it, that's where it gets into trouble. When our hate, disgust, and our anger overcomes us, and we start thinking that the drug addict, the alcoholic, the homosexual, the lesbian, the wife beater, the rapist, the pedophile, the murderer, etc., 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 keep mentioning the people that you absolutely disgust you, that absolutely make you angry, that you can't believe that they even exist, you can't believe that they're even alive. And if you allow the thought and the hatred and the anger towards those people to be like, you know what? God couldn't even save these people. You're in trouble. You're in trouble. You're walking away from God. You're walking away from God. Now listen, friends, don't misunderstand me. I'm not trying to water down the gospel. Every single person that I just mentioned has to go after Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, has to believe that he died on the cross and that Jesus is the only way to heaven. I get that. I'm also not saying that you can't protect your family and say, listen, I know this person has had struggles with this, this, and this. I'm not going to let my kid hang out with that person. I'm not going to let my wife be with that person. I'm not going to let my husband be with that person. I'm not going to do those things, but you don't have to have a hate-filled thought towards the people. You can say, you know what, I'm going to protect my family, I'm going to protect my friends, I'm going to protect these folks, and I'm going to pray for that person and say, Lord, open their eyes in some way, shape, or form. It may not come through you. You may not be the evangelist that reaches them with the gospel, but I'm telling you right now, if you only have hate towards those folks, you can guarantee that you'll never be that evangelist that reaches that person because you do not have the heart of God. James 1.20 tells us that human anger does not produce the righteousness of God. We are to leave room for God's wrath and his vengeance, but we are to deliver the gospel. And if we allow our hatred and anger towards others to keep us from doing the Great Commission, we have an issue in our personal relationship with God. We need to remember that we don't fight against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities, against the rulers of this dark world. Separating it can be difficult. It can be very hard. I don't know how to do it, Pastor Dave. You do know how to do it. You just saw it. You just saw it. The example is Esther. You spend specific time with God. Lord, what do you want to do? What do you want to do? If we want to gain more of the thought process and the love that God has, we need to spend time with God. As Esther fasted and prayed in a way to say, God, I don't want anything of this world to interfere with with my plans, with you, with, with what you want to do. That's what we have to do. God, I don't want this world to infiltrate, to interrupt what you're calling me to do. I don't want that. So I need to separate things. I need to separate from the world. And I need to get you. Friends, we need to spend more time away from the things of this world and with God. More time away from the world, more time with God. Lord, what would you call me to do? What would you have me do? Father, I have this hatred in me. Some of you just need to be honest. Lord, I have this hatred towards this person, towards this group of people, whatever it may be, because of this, this, and this. Help me. 
Help me, God. And he will. He will help you. He will keep you calm, cool, and collected, just like Esther was. Esther was able to go into there, into that room, first with King Xerxes, and then with Haman and Xerxes sitting there. The, the, the murderer of her people, the, 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 the soon-to-be murderer of her people, and she's able to just stand there stoically and say, I tell you what, we're going to meet tomorrow. Come back tomorrow. Peace, patience, self-control. What are those things, friends? Those are the fruits of the Spirit. And Esther is sitting there displaying them right there, right then at that time. And why? Because she spent that time with God. She declared her faith knowing that God would make this happen. God would work. And then she said, God, I know you can make it happen, so now I'm going to spend time with you. Haman had no hope. Haman had no hope because he didn't know God. He wasn't ever going to go to God. Instead, he's going to go with his friends and his family and say, okay, we're going to make a big old poll, and I'm going to kill Mordecai before I kill the rest of them. And we're going to do it by tomorrow morning, which next week you're going to see, it ain't going to be tomorrow morning. <laughs> the story is great. It's hilarious. I love the story of Esther. <laughs> but he had no hope. Even the fact that he doesn't wring Mordecai's neck at the gate. It says, you know, what did it say in there? It said, but, more, but Haman restrained himself from killing Mordecai at the gate. I'll, I'll give him a few minutes. I'm telling you right now, friends, even that was the Spirit of God. Probably protecting Mordecai more than anything. But, but God had other plans for Haman <laughs> and uh, definitely had plans for Mordecai. So, so even though, even though uh, Haman was able to restrain himself and have some self-control there, that's only because God had various plans set up and in motion and Esther had started to unfold them. And it was about to get real powerful. And friends, like I said, we need to follow that example of Esther. Lord, I need to spend more time with you and a lot less time with this world. A lot less time on the phone. A lot less time on social media. A lot less time with people who are just jabberwockies and just talking and talking and talking and talking. I call it jabberwocky. I don't think that's, that's what that means. Anybody remember that song, Jabberwocky, back in the 70s? Okay, anyways. I don't know what it is. Look it up one of these days. I know it's not that bad, so you can look it up. It was a Star Wars enemy or something. I don't know what it was. But anyways, they just want to talk your ear off, and they want to distract you. They may not realize that they want to distract you from God's purpose, but they are. And you need to be able to say, Lord, I need to separate myself from them. And I need to gain that patience. I need to gain that peace. I need to gain that self-control that you have readily available for me in the fruits of the Spirit so that I can move in the direction you want me to go. I know it's hard sometimes, friends, to look at certain people, to look at the way they act and what they do, and automatically go to, there's no way God can save them. Do not allow that thought to enter your mind. You can't, because you're not the judge. Remember what we said, well, what the Bible said. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. Leave room for my wrath. He knows what he's doing. Yes, 
You can look at things in the Bible in which God, you know, had the Israelites, hey, listen, you're going to take out the land of Canaan because I've already judged them, and I'm using you as the tool of destruction for them. But beyond that, there's, there's not, that doesn't happen a whole lot. God is the one that lays down that judgment, and he lets them know. But Pastor Dave, what about when God told Jeremiah to stop praying for people? One, that's a very rare instance. And two, God had already put judgment on the Israelites at that time, and he was pretty much telling them, Jeremiah, you just got to stop. This is already set in stone. This is how it's going to work. What we can learn from that, friends, which ties in with this, is when you get frustrated, when you get angry, err on the side of grace. Err on the side of grace. Don't err on the side of judgment. Jeremiah could have just said, that's right, y'all going to hell because <laughs> you're a bunch of idiots. Err on the side of grace and let the Lord tell you, stop, I've got my judgment set. Err on the side of grace, friends. It's hard. I get it. It's difficult. But err on the side of grace and allow the Lord to have his day, allow the Lord to have his wrath, or allow the Lord to forgive just like he forgave you.